What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Farah Sat, and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode. I'm definitely better than Boris Johnson by so many country miles. It has always been the thing that people will remember about me as my actual voice and also the um, ability to swear. I had one minister, like, talk to me like he was my dad. Like, oh, little girl, calm down, sort of thing. And I was just like, what did you fucking say to me? (laughs) Fuck you. You're not my dad. (laughs) It's just like, how dare you? How dare you tell me to be quiet? Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers and performers grow up to become such great communicators? If you enjoy this episode, we'd love it if you can let us know what you think by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And I'm joined this time by one of the most appropriate candidates ever, I think, for how I found my voice, Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley, Jess Phillips. And Jess, I have to say, at a time when the news media talks so much about how politicians have lost respect in the UK because of the madness over Brexit... I think you prove them wrong because you are widely regarded as one of the most respected politicians out there, especially by young people, which must be so gratifying. Proudly working class, frank about what you think is wrong as well as right in your own Labour Party. 
You worked at the women's aid charity supporting survivors of domestic violence and trafficking before you became an MP in 2015. And you've always continued to campaign on giving a voice to vulnerable people on such issues as tackling violence against women. So I want you to take me back Mm -hmm. to young Jess growing up in the the late 80s, early 90s. You have said speaking up on politics was mandatory in your home. What was it like? That is definitely true. So my parents were members of the local Labour Party and they were never the sort of members that like had positions or anything. Um, They were just the proper workarounds. So our house was always turned over to the Labour Party during any election time. Um, And so talking about politics and speaking up uh, was absolutely part of the culture that we grew up in. We were opted into every single campaign that you could possibly think about. I mean, I remember being a child and being on general strike marches and in a buggy. We used to release a lot of balloons, maybe for CND, I can't remember. There was a lot about the bomb back then. Um, this is the mid-80s. The mid-80s, yeah. yeah. So I was raised in women's liberation playgroup, so my mum and a number of other local women had set up a sort of collective because there was no organised childcare where like people would volunteer one day a week, they wouldn't work, and so that the, they would look after the kids on that day. We, I mean, even our food came from sort of weird socialist collective fruit buying scheme that we had so everything in my childhood everything was about speaking up and making your voice heard and never ever ever believing that anybody was better than you that was the fundamental was nobody is better than you nobody nobody can tell you you don't have a say everybody has a say in society but it it was a lot of work as well the idea of having a say as a child wasn't just that you know you get it and you don't have to do anything with it. It meant actually using it on your Saturdays and Thursday evenings. And and there was an awful lot of work that went with having a political voice. And what did your parents do? So my dad was a teacher. When I was little, he was still a proper classroom teacher in Hansworth in Birmingham. Um, and he specialised in teaching uh, for generations through the 60s, 70s and 80s, the generations of new migrants who came. So he specialised in uh, teaching children with English as a second language. And so my dad can speak, you know, sort of passable Punjabi. I mean, when you watch him now, sort of nearly 80 year old man speak in absolutely perfect patois. It is uh, one of the most impressive things you'll ever see. And my mum, when I was little, she uh, was a secretary um, for a big public sector body at the time. It was called ROSPA. I have a vague recollection. Oh, Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents. And that meant when I was a kid, we were often the kids who were depicted on the... um, the sort of safety posters. I remember doing. Are you on leaflets like reaching yeah, for bleach and stuff? Yes, the, we were. On, we were definitely in a big lorry on one, something to do with seatbelts. I think you know, in the dawn of the seatbelt, yeah. there was a lot of me and my brothers having to put on seatbelts. I remember being one of the first people to ever get a Fisher Price roller skates that we had to do the sort of safety. Uh, announcements on and we I got a pair of fisher pipes roller skates because I mean, it sounds like the family were all sort of coming from the same place politically but I wonder what impact that had with your friends because I think you've talked about your your father said you know Disney was a fascist so I'm guessing oh, totally. you didn't get to watch Disney cartoons no we weren't allowed to watch Disney cartoons we weren't allowed to drink Coca-Cola I wasn't allowed to watch Neighbours I'm really not sure what Neighbours has done politically wrong uh, but really anything uh, funnily enough my sort of dislike of the spread of the West is how I'm going to um, categorise Was it sort of that. maybe the idea of imperialist Western culture? It definitely, culture. imperialist Western culture was to be 
ignored all time. So, but Bryony, who lived down the road, whose parents were both, you know, also reasonable, so but not quite so hardline as my dad. I used to go into her house every day after school to watch Neighbours, and I mean, there was a singularity of thought. My grandfather also lived with us from when I was about three years old. Tell me about him. He was quite an influence. I mean, he, he was a massive influence on me. My grandfather was from literally the slum in Birmingham, but he was an absolutely rabid. I mean, left winger. Like, so he used to. He was friends with Tony Benn. He used to do all of the cartoons for the campaign group, which still exists in Parliament today, and they now have the leadership of the Labour Party. So I used to have to pose as a child. I used to have to stand for hours, like holding a pen or standing in a certain position, so that he could get exactly right an, an image of Jeremy Corbyn or Diane Abbott or um, Tony Benn. And I've got all these brilliant little notes from Tony Benn saying, "Don't worry, we'll fight and rise again." Uh, to my granddad so yeah he was a massive influence but he lived with us when my mum went back to work when I was about three or four he came to live with us to help with the childcare he basically raised me and my brother Luke because he was the one who took us to school every day made our lunches every day he uh, was there when we got back because my parents were both at work and he was absolutely categorical in his singularity of his ideology of left-wingness and my father very much although they used to row my father very much followed his line of thinking whereas my mother was definitely much more of a I don't even want to say pragmatist because my mother was a deep socialist it was absolutely at her core to be a socialist and a feminist but she also desperately wanted there to be a Labour government And I think that she felt that some of the more masculine singularity was what was stopping it. Looking back at this amazing upbringing you had, it somehow seems inevitable that you'd become an MP, but it wasn't, was it? No, what not did at you all. want to be? A... I mean, I famously wanted to be the Prime Minister, I think, when I was a kid, but only in the way that precocious kids who have been told that politics is everything uh, would be like, one day I'm going to be the Prime Minister. And of course, Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister when I was a kid. So the idea of a woman being the Prime Minister was not alien to me. I always knew that I wanted to work in the public sector in some way because both my parents worked in the public sector. And the idea that you only ever got, you know, a real job was one that had service involved in it, Mm -hmm. that was about serving and doing good. And when I was a kid, when I was like eight years old, my mum would get the Guardian on a Monday that had the public sector jobs in and she would make me look through them in a sort of... These are the sorts of jobs you should think about having when you're a grown-up. So the idea of public service was always completely and utterly the only thing I was ever going to do. But lest we think you were always just set on the idea of civic duty, (laughs) you do say in your book, Every Woman, which is a fascinating read, um, there's an amazing statement where you say you look back in horror at some of the stuff you thought was normal at 14. Mm. What was going on in your life as a teenager? Well, when I was a teenager, I have to say, certainly the idea of uh, political activism was waning a little bit. Even in my home, um, it seemed like things were just getting better for people. There was an era where things were just getting better. But one thing I would say about my teenage years is that being a teenage girl in the 90s is a mass of contradictions because it's seen as being this era of bold, brash women mm. stepping forward. Ladettes. Well, exactly. All the Ladette culture, all of the sort of loaded, like taking ownership of it. And in reality, it was entirely male gaze. It was entirely women designed in some back room by some young and old men. Mm. And definitely me and my friends fell for the idea that we were there 
although brash and bold with it, that we were there for men's pleasure. Mm. Um, I went to the Kubrick exhibition. Uh, oh, the this, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, the Stanley Kubrick yeah. exhibition this week. And the, the, I walked around with the curator and he was absolutely bowled over by my knowledge of Kubrick films. And I said, oh, he said, are you a big fan? I said, well, I was a big fan of trying to get boys to like me in the 1990s so I can literally repeat almost every word of Full Metal Jacket. Um, and... <laughs> That was definitely our whole pursuit, the music we liked, the things we wanted to do was all designed around the boys that we fancied. Um, and some of the things that we got up to, we, we would never have gone out with somebody who wasn't much older than this. And I'm talking about when I'm 14, 15, when I was a child, we would never have gone out with somebody who was under 18, for example, which is illegal. Yeah. But there is absolutely no way we would have thought anything of it. It would have been absolutely shameful to go out with somebody our own age. I remember one of my friends had a 35-year-old boyfriend when we were 15, when it was as if that was absolutely it's reasonable. It's how recent so much of this stuff is. Mm. You're right to reassess it. You did go to university. You were in economics, social policy and mm -hmm. history at Leeds. Mm -hmm. I gather your mum made you send her your essay so she could check you were working hard enough. What was all that about? I don't know if it was to check I was working hard enough, it was to do them for me. I mean, really, they should probably take my degree off me. Um, I, I really hated university and I tried to give up on many occasions. I didn't like being away from home. I wanted to be in Birmingham. I wanted to be back Um where I felt I belonged and uh, I tried to give up and my mum just kept stopping me from giving up. What didn't you like about it? I didn't like being away from my people and at the time my brother wasn't very well and I used to feel like I had to go back and look after him. Also I had a boyfriend who was a terrible boyfriend, frankly. Uh, but he was back in Birmingham and he was intending to move to Leeds with me but obviously he never did because that would have meant his life being about me, not the other way around. And so I wanted to come back all the time. I, I just, I belong in Birmingham. I've tried to live in other places, but I genuinely belong there. But there's also, I think, I, I would argue as well, I think I wasn't that happy at university. There's a lot of anxiety that women have and we're not... We're supposed to have a wonderful time and no one wants to admit it. But even things like eating disorders, I was really aware of how... How a lot of women develop them at university too. Oh, absolutely. I had a terrible eating disorder when I was at university. I remember for months and months I ate nothing but popcorn. I weighed about seven stone and I'm five foot eight, so it's totally unrealistic that I should weigh that much. It's not even so much that I felt the pressure of what I was meant to be doing at university, although the deadlines and all that always play on your mind. It was more, I just didn't feel like I fitted in, if I'm honest. For a start off, when I started, I started doing politics and I had this idea that it was going to be like my ramshackle working class family all having a butt about Arthur Scargill around the dinner table. And when I got there, there were pe most of the people in my class were young men from public school. We were talking about like John Stuart Mill and I was like... There were these old dudes I'm having to talk about. I want to talk about single parents' benefits. And so, which is why I changed to social policy because I really hated. And also in my head, I thought it was going to be like the women's room and we were just going to be like batik hangings and, <laughs> and we were all just going to be talking about our feelings. It was very disappointing not to have a feminist enlightenment uh, at university. And so it just was not at all what I expected it to be. I think it was the first time I'd ever been exposed to people who didn't have the same views as me. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So when you did graduate, because you did get your degree, did you go straight into working for Women's Aid? Immediately after I got my degree, I was working in a pub in Birmingham and I was working in and for an events management organisation at the time as well in the daytime, so I had two jobs. But I got pregnant when I was 22 with my first son 
And so that was almost immediately, really, after I'd left university. There's only about a sort of nine-month period uh, in between. So I then sort of stopped working for quite a long period. Well, I suppose it woke me up because I wasn't bothered about my degree or doing anything that had anything to do with my degree. And I just sort of was like... I don't really know what I want to do, but being a mom made me, it made me feel like I mattered in the world, actually, and that I should try and do something for myself. It actually wasn't a sort of, I've got to provide for this baby. It made me feel like I matter again, and for years I'd felt a lot like I didn't really matter. And Can I just say, that's fascinating, because so many women say, especially women who've been working, they feel erased, they feel they disappear when they become mothers. But you actually I felt found exactly a new the, empowerment. Diff- the, the other way around. And I think that there is a difference between the sort of uh, more middle class, go to university, get a career, and then being, becoming a mom erases you. And the idea mm-hmm. for lots of vulnerable and poorer women, actually being a mom makes you matter yes. in the world. And it definitely made me feel for a long time that I mattered. And so then I went about uh, getting loads of experience um, in sort of social care. I set up a mother and baby group for back then. It was the uh, big Congolese and um, people from Sierra Leone, massive influx of mothers from those areas into Birmingham. So I set up a sort of refugee mother and baby group. Uh, to help in Ladywood, uh, where at the time the infant mortality rate was one in three. It's it's amazing what you did. And then going on to work at Women's Aid, hmm. tell me about how that experience shaped your voice. I mean, it totally and utterly changed and my life. And remind those who don't know how... what Women's Aid, all over the country, there are lots of different Women's Aids, and uh, by and large they run refuges for victims of domestic violence and their children. They also run community services. The one I worked for ran human trafficking service, had a female offender service, uh, was the local rape crisis as well. It was the most life-changing experience. For a start off, it was working only with other women. And there was this sense that the organisation is not just about the betterment of the women in service, it is about the betterment of all women and that we stand together and work together for this sort of scourge on society of violence against women and girls can only be got rid of by the liberation of all women. So the sense of duty towards the women who worked there, and there was a, by the time I left, there was a staff of around 160, that the whole thing was about raising everybody up because if you rise women up, they're much less likely to be uh, the classic victims of uh, gender-based violence going forward. The thing that was brilliant about it is that I, you'd be going from one day where you're called in by the Home Secretary, she would come in to refuge or you'd, I'd be called down here to talk through the then modern slavery bill and the next day you would literally be the person who was putting up a bunk for a, a new family who'd just arrived or you'd be the one buttering baps because there was going to be a party in the refuge. It was a, a huge range of things. that, And it, yeah. was, it, is, it is totally representative of the women's movement. Yeah. It is that, that there is no job you should ever ask somebody to do that you're not willing to do yourself and so we all just mucked in all the time but together. crucially everything you did you could see straight away the impact it was having yes and I think what's interesting is that when you choose to become an MP mm-hmm. in theory it's because you want to pursue that but of course it's harder because there's all these legislative hurdles and procedural things you have to go through 
Can I talk a bit about you becoming an MP, starting yeah. with, given that you say you didn't have a plan, no. you say in your book, someone suggested it to you and you said, sod it, I'll give it a go. <laughs> that is exactly what happened. Uh, I mean, it was, this is how I, I make difficult life decisions in my life. Somebody rang me up and said, oh, you know, we think that you should consider standing to be a member of parliament. Would you be interested? Was this someone from the party? It was from the Labour Party. Yeah. I said, oh, you know, I think it would be a good idea. You should consider putting yourself forward. You know, you're making uh, a lot of waves in the party. And I'd only just rejoined uh, the Labour Party. Well, why had you left? I left over Iraq. Oh, so I left in Iraq, 2005. Oh, and in fact, I left uh, before 2005, 2004. Three. And uh, I didn't come back until 2010 okay. because I wanted to vote in the leadership election. Uh, just classic. Um, he rang me up and I remember shouting to Tom, uh, my husband, uh, up the stairs, I was like, oh, they're saying maybe I should stand to be an MP. And he was like, oh, all right then, love, that sounds all right. That is the level of decision-making that we talk about, the fact that I would might have to move away or dedicate my life to this. It was just sort of like, we should give it a go. By that point, I think that I had been so empowered by working at Women's Aid and empowered by the idea that... I could do it because I was constantly being called in to give advice to people. Well, my organisation was, and I was working at high levels with government. Yeah, you were. And so I also, what really used to really annoy me was how they didn't know anything. Well, this is the thing, you didn't have imposter syndrome <laughs> because you knew you knew more yeah, than they Yeah, I did. definitely knew that yeah, I knew more than so they did. That's so um, interesting. On that particular thing, I used to say to my dad, what am I going to do when it comes to foreign affairs? I'm going to have to learn all the countries. <laughs> sit there with an atlas. But but it turns out when you're actually doing it, you learn straight away what you your what is going to matter, what are the salient points. But that was my only thing. I thought I, on when you work with women and children and you work in refuge, you have pretty much you're going to cover almost every single part of domestic legislation. So housing, welfare, um, health, health. Education, yes. we were covering everything to do with the, the affairs of the Home Office, crime, justice. So you're touching pretty much every piece of domestic legislation and I knew that I would know more about how they actually interact with people's lives as well as my own life than most of the people who I might be up against in Westminster. But yeah, so the foreign affairs thing was the sort of like, oh gosh, I'm going to be like George W. Bush, you know, <laughs> and they didn't know the names of... <laughs> Foreign officials. No, 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 you get up to speed on that very, very fast. <laughs> I want to ask about the, the moment of winning your seat because... It's this amazing moment that was caught on camera when, you know, the count came. And the UKIP candidate told you what he, you know you should say, like as if you didn't know. It was actually the Lib Dem candidate. Was it Lib Dem candidate? It was the Lib Dem oh, candidate. To be fair to yeah. UKIP, it was the Lib Dem candidate. Yeah, yeah. No, the Lib Dem candidate was actually quite a nice bloke. <laughs> uh, the UKIP candidate was quite UKIP a nice bloke. So tell me how nice you bloke. responded and performed at the declaration because it's a great moment. <laughs> well, I mean, at first, even though you know before you stand on that stage that you have won because you have pretty much been told the figures. Although, I should say this is 2015. This is 2015. You don't, you don't know the actual final figure necessarily, but you know that you're the winner. But it was six o'clock in the morning and I'd been up for, it must have been 36 hours by this point. 
And so when they declare that I am the winner, I literally sort of like drop like a rag doll. <laughs> like I cannot believe that I have been elected to Parliament because up until that moment, it's a bit like when I had my first son, actually, where I, like I say, you know, you say you're going to do it for something to do. And then I remember being looking at him in the pushchair when he was a week old in Sainsbury's in King's Heath and being like, oh, my God, I've got a baby. And when they declared that I would go to Westminster, I was like, I cannot believe this. I'm going to be a member of Parliament. I'd been in the House of Parliament, I think, at that point twice. Yeah. It, but... but- Someone said to you, oh, you know, you need to remember to thank the returning officer. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the Lib Dem, the, the outgoing MP, as I walked down, said to me, oh, you must remember to thank the returning officer. And I was like, I, I know what I'm doing, thanks very much. It was so paternalistic. It was so like, oh, little girl, you, you let me tell you, man of authority, that this is the way to do it. And I just was like whatever, mate. I know exactly what I'm doing. I've been watching elections since I was born. Everybody always thanks the returning officer and the police for making sure that the count was okay. I mean, this isn't this isn't my first rodeo, uh, is how I felt. But uh, it was brilliant. It was absolutely a magnificent moment. And when, I remember it really fondly. Oh God. But also, when you came down to Westminster for the first time, you travelled in a camper van, didn't yep. you? Yeah, I've only just got rid of that. Yeah, we came down in the camper van. I wanted my kids to come with me because... Like I say, I'm not sure that we were entirely prepared for how much our life would change and I wanted them to be part of the transition to help them realise what was going on. But when I rang, there's like a travel office in Westminster that they set you up to ring. And when I rang and said, I'm going to bring my children with me, we're going to need a hotel room big enough for my children. And they were quoting me literally phenomenal amounts of money to me. Maybe now I wouldn't think so much of it, but it was like £700 a night. I was like... Are you kidding me? That is like what I pay for us all to live in Birmingham for a whole month. In fact, it was more than that, much more than we were paying. So I just couldn't, I couldn't bear it. So we all packed up our stuff into the camper van. But we, we managed in the end to sleep on the floor, all four of us in one like small Wait, London you room. It? We didn't, we parked, <laughs> we managed to park the van at my, our friend Matt's okay. house. And then he, he went and slept somewhere else. And we, all four of us, in oh. his in his one room. I just had this vision of it parked on Westminster College <laughs> Green or something. Or... I mean, it is actually illegal to park your camper van and then sleep in it okay. uh, without a license. Oh, so right. obviously, as becoming a lawmaker, I would never do that. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the stuff you've done in Parliament. You've written about challenging the archaic way the House of Commons mm-hmm. works and crucially things like in debate. You know, some senior male MPs who get called first, they hog the debate time and it means less and less time is left. So your whole big mm. speech has to be crushed down to three minutes. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest challenge in terms of trying to operate and make an impact? Um, I think the, the the difficult thing is, at first, is not letting it squash you because it is a phenomenally historic place. And some of the people, on the, on the very first day I entered Parliament, I went to the Parliamentary Labour Party meeting and John Prescott was sat opposite me and Neil Kinnock was sat next to me. But remember, I grew up in like the 80s, dedicated to the Labour Party, and I was like, oh, my God, it's like spitting image. Uh, this is unbelievable. And you have to very, very quickly uh, learn not to be really, really crushed by the the sort of enormity of the situation you find yourself in and Harriet Harman on the very first day she got in front of the new MPs and she said you are not novice MPs you were elected to office just exactly like I was elected to office there is no internship there is no moment where you are somehow lesser than the people who are already here you 
represent your people and never forget that, just like Ken Clark represents his people, just like anybody represents their people. There is no hierarchy. We are all sent here by the people. And that was sort of like a moment like, okay, I'm not going to let this carry me. Um, but it... I mean, in debate, getting your voice heard, I actually found that the best way to do that was to speak in my own voice and not to speak in the voice of Westminster and to not worry about all of the arcane practices. And if you get them wrong, not to think that you're somehow deficient as a member of parliament for using the wrong protocol, like you're not allowed to say you and you're meant to remember you're everybody's... The honourable member. Yeah, the honourable member or the minister. Mm -hmm. um, and... When I got it wrong, the speaker would point it out that I got it wrong. And I said, oh, sorry, whatever. Yeah. To just behave like a normal person would and talk like a normal person. They do a test of how um, age appropriate our language is. And mine is age appropriate for something like 10 year olds. No, no, no. It it's, was 14 oh, it to 14 15 year olds. I, I read better. it in the book. And it is like. Which is a compliment. Which is a total compliment that accessible. you're communicating at an accessible level. Uh, and. I can't remember what the test is called, but I love that they do that for every MP. But the, um, yeah, you just have to be brave enough to be yourself. And that is a much bigger thing in that place where everything is so, this is the time you do this. This is the way that we walk. This is the way you can go and sit. And I've never lived in an environment mm. like that. My family was like chaos. Well, wasn't that thing you said in Parliament about you didn't, no posh people. Yeah. Um, until nev yeah. You never I thought met I'd met you posh met people them. until I came to Westminster. But they were just people who were olives. Yeah, I just met some slightly middle class people. I really, And then loads of my friends were like, I thought you were quite posh. I was like, you want to see the But it is in interesting, there. you know, it, it did really resonate with people. It's one of those yeah, famously <laughs> went viral. But it's because people identified with yeah. the honesty of what you were saying. Perversely. I have met many people since I was elected, none before. I thought I'd met posh people before I came here, but I'd actually just met people who eat olives. Um, I have met lots of people who earn way more than £30,000 who have literally no discernible skills, not even one. To give another example, which is a much more solemn one, um, there was that very famous moment when you read out a list of the names of 120 women who'd been mm -hmm. murdered was it through domestic abuse by their own partners or just murdered by men? Um, in the first year, I think they were all domestic abuse-related killings. And you do that have, every year? I do that every year. It's gone on to be all women. So it includes as well those murdered in terrorist, women murdered by terrorists because there is a well-trodden link, in fact, between yes. people who commit terrorism and previous history of it's domestic, domestic abuse. Violence, you're and right. they are more likely to target places with women. It had an amazing impact when you did it for the first time. Today I stand to honour every victim and the fight to end violence against women. Here are the names of the women who died since International Women's Day last year. Lucy Iris, aged 25. Alison Wilson, 36. Janet Miller, 21. Sarah Pollock, 41. Jill Goldsmith, 49. Zanita Balazova, 23. Cecilia Powell, 95. Marion Smith, 74. Violet Price, 80. Karen Buckley, 24. Susan Devonport, 63. Violence against women has no one face. We must do better. These women are gone here in this place. We must not let them die in vain. We owe that much to them 
We owe them much more than what they got. Why did you decide to read that list and continue to read those Um, lists? The idea came, I think it was uh, another colleague of mine approached me and said, oh, you know, I think that we need to do something to honour the dead women, have some sort of thing on International Women's Day, There had been quite um, a few places where a group of feminists had laid out red shoes for all the uh, women who'd been murdered, as if to say that they can no longer fill their shoes. And this had been done in public spaces. And so we want the idea came from doing something like that in Westminster Hall. Now, there's me thinking, I'm just going to go and say, do you mind if I just lay out some red shoes in Westminster Hall? Or in fact, not even bother to ask and just do it anyway. I very, very quickly realised that protocol means that to use Westminster Hall, which is the big, big sort of cavernous uh, entryway into uh, Parliament, you have to go through about 900 pieces of bureaucracy because actually one of the weird reasons is because it has to always be ready in case one of the royal family oh, nice. dies. Yeah, and so, and I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea I was going to have to like write a risk assessment for a royal death. Mm. Um, so reading the list was actually much quicker to get done. It, so the only, so we, we thought of other ways that we could do it and make the impact. Uh, I was like, look, I think that actually reading out a roll call like um, you do with soldiers, the idea that these women are warriors in a in a war, in a war. will be the, the best way to do it. But it's not even that simple that we would be able to do it because obviously I was a junior member of parliament. I don't get to speak for a long time in the debate and actually... I, likelihood is, is I would only be given three minutes to speak. So I, myself and a number of other women from the Parliamentary Labour Party pled with the Speaker to allow me to speak for longer and to start the debate so that I could speak for longer. And every year he has, or whoever has been in the chair, has made sure that that's the case. It's really interesting. One of the key ways you've always used your voice is working out what the system is, mm. making sure that you talk to the right people and they're on side. It's really it is absolutely vital. Doing mm. things on your own and being a maverick is all well and good, but it will only get you so far. Mm. You, are, as I say in my book, I will dance with the devil to make women and children Mm. safer. Not that I'm saying Mr Speaker is the devil. He's a very, very good man, especially on these issues. There's a million ways to skin a cat. Well, I want to talk some more about these related things. There's a photograph of you that I use when I give lectures in schools and universities. And it's part of a collection I keep of women with what I call to be polite, WTF expressions. (laughs) And in the picture, you have your arms folded in a committee room looking in exasperation as uh, MP Philip Davies is insisting on talking about why, why isn't there an International Men's Day? How do you deal with that sort of anti-feminist antagonism? Because you do have a reply for that yeah, kind of grief. I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I reply with facts more than often, but also humour. I mean, in the case of women's equality, there is literally no argument that anyone can give to suggest that historically women, or even today, have equality. Because we just simply don't. We still get paid less. We're still much more likely to be beaten or raped in our homes. We're still, it's, we still have to pay more money for our razors because they happen to be pink. We're still constantly marketed at by men. There is so many examples but of why. But you also say that, well, go ahead and set up your group and I'll support you. Oh, absolutely. Like, but why should you have to do everything? Oh, absolutely. Why is it a feminist job to solve male equality? If they feel that they're not getting the funding or they're not 
being able to access services appropriately. Why is that on me? In fact, somebody came into my surgery the other day and said, is there a male, there isn't a male domestic violence service in Birmingham? To which I got to reply, yeah, yes, there is. Uh, as somebody who was the person who insisted on it being commissioned, I was like, "This here it is and this is the number. So already, pipe down from your <laughs> grievance, there is one thanks to people like me. And uh, he said, oh, but it's not the same. They don't get the same as women. I said, well, I'm going to explain to you how the women's movement started. It started with a dirty mattress on the floor of a squat and it built its way up over the years to be so powerful as a lobby that it has people in parliament and it has the ear of government when making policy. So crack on with that. I mean, why why is it my responsibility? Why is it my responsibility to do solve all problems? about your actual voice because it's quite low it's very strong <laughs> spoke too many fags as a child <laughs> okay that's <laughs> that's one element of it but um you speak in this very accessible down-to-earth way as we've already discussed and of course the brummy accent mm-hmm. which i think it's fair to say historically has not been treated with respect no, necessarily are you conscious of your voice and how you use it i used to be really really conscious and really hate listening back to the sound of my voice. I really hated it. And I frequently get referred to as Sir on the telephone because my voice is really low or get called Jeff when you say your name's <laughs> Jess. <laughs> Happens all the time. Um, which, I, I mean, and now I've grown to love that. You should have uh, But I used to be, like, cringing when that would happen to me. But uh, my accent is the, my single greatest asset and I truly believe that. It has always been the thing that people will remember about me is my actual voice and also that my um, ability to swear I have to say is one of the greatest gifts that I have. I read a thing with Marina Hyde somebody said how is it that she writes such amazing columns and she said it's just swearing Um, and my ability to swear actually makes people feel comfortable with me. Could you give us a couple of examples? <laughs> I mean, I will swear all the time. I don't even know I'm doing it half the time. And I obviously I'm uh, adult enough to not do it when I'm in company because I haven't sworn here. But I will say the word fuck literally every third word normally. <laughs> it's not even in exasperation. My children, who are now 10 and 14... I have absolutely no problem with them swearing at home. I don't mind them swearing at all, as long as they don't swear at each other in aggression or swear at anyone in aggression, and they don't swear at school. Those are the the rules. That makes it harder in a way. I'm interested as well in, because obviously there's a sense of you're being true to yourself. You know, authenticity is this big obsession in our era. But as you've always implied, there are codes. So not swearing in Parliament, or your kids knowing they mustn't swear at each other outside the home, Mm. I mean, isn't that complicated? Well, no, just, I mean, all I what I don't want them to do is say, like, you're a fucking arsehole to each other. They can say, like, if they drop a book on their foot, like, fuck, that's fine. They are completely different things. One is, like, common parlance in my mm-hmm. home, and I could never, it would be, it would be really hypocritical of me to say that they couldn't swear because they have been raised in quite a sweary household. Oh, can I ask you a question? <laughs> How do you feel about the C word? Because... I I first came across the word reading D.H. Lawrence. For yeah. me, it's always been a term of affection. And, <laughs> and it's something that, you know, it's very beautiful, intimate. But the irony of people saying that Donald Trump, he's, you yeah. know, he's a, a C word because he hates women. 
You know, there's a whole feminist argument about yeah, that Yeah, so my mum hated the C word, absolutely hated it in a sort of proper old school feminist way. You can say I, it, I just I can't bring myself to. <laughs> well, I say it all the time, I'm afraid to say. Yeah. yeah, it's not something I don't feel squeamish about. I don't feel squeamish about any of the uh, sort of gendered um, swear words. So the word bitch, the word, yeah, I don't feel... You don't worry about people saying, you know, grow a pair of balls or, you know, she's the only one with any balls in this situation. I, I mean, I, I would prefer it if the language about men like grow a pair of yeah. balls I would prefer it if it wasn't positives for men negatives for women but there are great uh, there are bigger battles to fight and unfortunately mm-hmm. I am a product of the, this society I grew up in and that's just the way people talk one thing I really hate I really hate it when women are referred to as girls that's the only bit of language I find really really uh, and there is a lot of sexist language that I think it would be better if it didn't have the connotations that it did, certainly about women who are sexually active, like slag slut. and slut and yeah. those sorts of things. That I don't like, actually. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily use those words. There are a lot of them as well. There are a lot of those. But, yeah, saying someone's a twat is absolutely fine. Okay. No, just, you, I know what you mean, like, the bigger battles to And a to prick, fight. you know, those two things, I'm, I'm fine with both of those. I've heard the word... you. Someone's an utter cock used yeah. very effectively yeah, as know. an alternative, a different C word. Yeah, exactly. Like. Yeah, no. So that all of that, I'm absolutely fine. So, with. can you give me an example of where swearing has been effective in your operation as a politician? Usually in my constituency, I would say. I remember an occasion where there was um, an older woman who'd come into my office. She was having a terrible time with her landlord. And she was exactly as you would imagine, a sort of proud working class older woman, sort of twin set and pearls, got a sort of shopping trolley there. And I said, oh, I apologise now, I'm going to swear now. Well, he sounds like a total wanker. <laughs> and she was like, oh, yes, love. And oh. immediately just felt like I was on her side, for example. My constituents treat me like I'm one of them all the time because I don't, act with any airs and graces with them and they don't I don't expect them to act with any airs and graces with me. I suppose it comes from years of working in refuge because refuge is a place that is somebody's home. And so the same working environment that you would be used to doesn't apply there because there are kids running around. So you make and... people feel they're in a home. Yeah, you, I want people, people people feel at home. I want people to feel I yeah. want people always to be engendered as if they are a part of a big bustling family and that we're working on something together. And that is because I come from a big bustling family that always had different people coming to live with us because they'd got divorced or their dad who was a wrong and we had endless different teenagers living with us when we were kids and little kids whose parents were, you know, in very, very serious traumatic situations. So I have always grown up both in the party, at home, in my working life, engendering the idea that we work together as a team, as a big mm. sort of slightly ugly family that doesn't quite fit together, but we'll we'll rub through together. And that's, my constituency office is exactly like that. It's just like a one ridiculous hodgepodge of just hundreds of people every week with from the sublime to the ridiculous in the things that they come in to request help with. And we try and rub through together like a family. Do you know what's amazing is listening to you say all this, seeing how this has obviously come from your life experience in Mm -hmm. places like Women's Aid, and yet knowing that you wrote in your book that you say you're actually terrified most of the time and have to resist the urge to turn around and go back home to avoid a lot of the public events you do. Mm -hmm. Why still? Um, I I think it has got better. Uh, I have got better at feeling like I belong. 
there are still though occasions if I was invited to something, I don't know, some big businessy thing that I would feel much better if somebody else who'd been there before was coming with me. Not necessarily for security, just so that you know you've got somebody to talk to when you get there, which is funny because my mum always used to say you could make you could make friends in an empty room, Jess. That I am very good at uh, quickly making somebody trust me very, very, very quickly. And that is a real skill. But yeah, I still feel like an imposter in lots of situations and that I won't know how to talk to the people. And it's not even a class thing, I don't think maybe it is. It is just feeling like yeah, this is not your setting, your belonging. Which makes me think of something else I have to ask, which is, you know, you get this constant abuse, a lot of it online. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed the other day, it was, you know, your first day of your kid's school holiday and you, you just tweeted something completely normal about <laughs> watching a movie, what yeah. you've done so far that day. And people just t- tweeted about these horribly snide remarks. Oh no, how ridiculous. Do you, how do you, and I know that <laughs> with some of the horrific rape threats, you have gone public and just, you know, pushed back hard and this is unacceptable and admitted they've upset you but you do still keep going and I know there are other women Gina Miller's one um, Tracy Ann Oberman who campaigns against anti-semitism is another I'm not saying it empowers you but it just seems to make you stronger and you push back hard it is like the opposite of kryptonite it makes me grow each and every time someone sends stupid snide remark Uh, I think mainly uh, my mum used to say you don't need to insult those people because being them is punishment enough. They have to go around being snide, horrible, like malevolent people. And they are attention-seeking, clearly. Oh, terribly. And uh, you've got to remember as well, I I don't read half of the stuff that gets sent to me. But yeah, saying that I'd watched a film and um, taken my kids bowling and that I might have peaked too soon. And all these people being like, even people being like, oh, aren't you lucky that you have the resources even? Or, oh, well, you know, you wouldn't know what it was like to be a real mum or stuff like that. Or sick of your kids already sort of thing. It's just like, fuck off! Is uh... <laughs> there's a brilliant example of how you deploy swearing exactly. to achieve a good impact? Oh, just like, oh, for goodness sake! Um, but it, but I know it's coming. I mean, if I write, I just had a bald egg. It was runny. Somebody will blame me for the Israel-Palestine conflict <laughs> somehow. So yeah. you do get used to you totally. It, you know that it isn't what you're saying or the content of your character that they're going against. They just hate you. Yeah. And that's that is absolutely fine because you know if you're offended by the fact that I like took my kids to KFC, then you know you really have not got anything to worry about. So mm. I know that it's not about me personally, mm. and the amount of love that I receive. Well, is you've got this phenomenal. amazing network around you of family and friends. Clearly, yeah. in your book, you actually break down the five different ways that women are intimidated out of speaking. Uh, the chapter's called "The Truth About Speaking Up." And can you can you talk us through the the, the things? I mean, I can remind you of the yeah. Things. Remind me, I so wrote it a long time ago. Shushing, shushing. Yeah, you would say that. Yeah. Fear of pigeonholing attention-seeking and threats. Yeah, so I would say actually every single one of them has happened to me. So the shushing is literally a direct thing that happens to women in the workplace where, I mean, in Westminster, the example I give in the book is that men actually shush you when you're speaking. And you actually put the finger, actually put the their finger up and they're like, shh. Especially if you're heckling in the way that they all do. They're like, oh, and I had one minister, like, talk to me like he was my dad. Like, oh, little girl, calm down sort of thing. And I was just like, what did you fucking say to me? <laughs> Fuck you. You're not my dad. Um, it's just like, how dare you? How dare you tell me to be quiet? But it happens in the work context as well. There is 
usually it happens just by people just talking over you, literally just to silence you. And yeah. I watch it in meetings all the time where a man will just start speaking over a woman when she's speaking and it's just like, dude, shut up. Mm. But so the other thing is, oh, you would say that. So if you're an expert in something at the moment, this idea that you're only saying something because of the life experience that you've had, which of course is the only reason you're saying something. Whereby, like, if I say something feminist, they say, oh, well, you know, she would say that. Or if I say something pro-European, oh, well, she would say that. I would say that because it's based on facts, figures and evidence and experience. But there's a huge amount of that that goes on that discredits people for their expertise. Well, well that's a very current thing, It is it? a very current thing. Um, and, the the yeah, the pigeonholing. It's funny enough, it was my dad who actually said to me when I was first in Westminster. And my dad loves me and he's a great feminist. No two ways about it. But he said, oh, you want to be careful. You don't get pigeonholed as being a feminist. You know, you get a bit pigeonholed. And I was just like, oh, you know, no one has ever said that to George Osborne. You don't want to get pigeonholed with that economy stuff. You don't want to get pigeonholed talking mm-hmm. about finance. People will think that you don't care about they say kids. It's about race too. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. ridiculous. You would never say it. You would never say it to a man and you would never say it to somebody speaking up about anything that that wasn't about equality because it's like it's a niche thing being a woman. We're 52% of the sodding population. Mm. It's not a niche thing. And women have houses, women have finance, women have everything that men have. But no one has ever said, yeah, oh, to Andy Burnham, you want to stop going on about that Hillsborough thing, you know. People will think you only care about football crowds. It's just totally ridiculous so that people would say that to me. And, and it's interesting, having just talked about, you know, trolling and stuff, that... Women get accused of attention-seeking for speaking and up that, on I'd issues. I'd say that at the moment is the most pernicious. It is the one I feel the most. So the thing, the response, if you look at any tweet that I put out, especially if it is like, because Twitter is not my office, Twitter is a social media platform. So if I say things like, just had a bang-in bacon sandwich, people will be like, oh, me, 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 me. And it's just like, oh, sorry, would you like some of this bacon sandwich? <laughs> I'll send it to you via the medium of the internet. It is just ridiculous, the idea that, especially, and I have to say, the attention-seeking thing and the idea that I am obsessed with myself is the single criticism I that, that the Corbynite uh, sort of wing of Twitter have decided is the, thing, the best way to attack me, to make it seem like it's me, 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 me. And they literally sing a song about Jeremy Corbyn. They literally put his face around like he's Shay Sodim Guevara and tell me that I'm self-obsessed. Well, as you raised him, can I ask? <laughs> you seem to have the confidence to be able to criticise your own party, your own party leader. Mm-hmm. What needs to change, do you think, within Labour? Oh, God, so much. So much on, on all sides. I don't think that um, it's... it's it, it purely falls down to one one person or one wing or one faction's uh, problems. I think there is a terrible war of attrition on both sides and it is just incredibly tedious. I personally think that um, at the moment it's pretty clear that on so many different fronts we have dilly-dallied to the point where there has been no political leadership. So whether whether it's the getting finally to the right position on Europe or the the seeming inability to grasp the nettle on the um, anti-Semitism issue. 
within the party and uh, personally for me I think actually the sexual harassment within the party equally uh, has been ignored although it doesn't get anywhere near the airtime it's just like come on dudes just do the right thing if if only just to shut us up uh, I mean I would do I would just do I would become so bloody squeaky clean just to be like in your face but they can't <laughs> even manage to do that and it's just getting to be so tedious but um the the reality is is that they're in the country the largest group of voters at the moment it seems to me are the politically homeless not a single one of my family and friends in Birmingham voted for the Labour Party in the European elections not one were they voting for an overtly remain supporting yes. party yeah. they were so there was a mixture of green and lib dem mm. i literally don't know anybody who voted labour these aren't just just Labour voters. These are Labour activists. These are people who've dedicated their life to public service. These are the midwives. These are the nurses, the teachers. These are the people on the school run literally looking at me in shame the day after the European election, not being able to bear to tell me that they didn't vote Labour. I have to ask, not because it follows on directly from the past, but because everything about the way you work and the, the impact that you have makes people wonder... You seem to have real potential oh, to be a potential prime minister, like the young you thought. <laughs> could you and would you? Uh, I, I think I could. I mean, I don't think there's any reason why I couldn't, apart from obviously enormous structural hurdles to overcome. Uh, would I? At the moment, it seems like anyone can have a go. Frankly, Donald Trump is the president of the United States and Boris Johnson, the prime minister. I'm definitely better than Boris Johnson by so many country miles. I mean, I feel so certain about that, having started this conversation by my family. I'm amazed you haven't deployed an expletive in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I was raised never to think that anyone was better than anyone else, but I'm definitely better than Boris Johnson. I just know it to be true. I, I, I think that people like me should think that they could become the Prime Minister. I think it's very unlikely that I will, uh, <laughs> to be honest. I don't, I don't see a way that that's ever possibly going to happen. Like I say, there's a few enormous structural hurdles in the way. Uh, but maybe one day. The Labour Party needs a woman leader, that's for sure. Oh, God, we could talk so, so much more, Jess. But Jess Phillips, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. You've been listening to How I Found My Voice with me, Samira Ahmed. The producer was Farah Jasset. If you enjoyed it, do rate us and leave a lovely review on Apple Podcasts with no swear words, unless they're nice swear words. We'd love to hear from you. Hello again, it's Farah Jassat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. Download the Out app today. What are you doing right now? 
Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.